With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Samuel Moyne, and he is publishing a book in about three weeks. The publication date will be September 7th, 2021. The title of the book is Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. And this is not his first book. He's actually published five other books. But he's also the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and a professor of history at Yale University. Uh, The other books that he's written is a Holocaust Controversy, The Treblinka Affair in post- Post-War France, published 2005. Origins of the Other, Emmanuel Levinas Between Revelation and Ethics, published 2007. The Last Utopia, Human Rights and History, published 2012. Human Rights and the Uses of History, published 2014. And then in 2019, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World. But this book traces the pattern of this uh, idea of being more humane in these vicious conflicts, but it goes back, but it was interesting. This book, it started with the figure, very fascinating figure of uh, Leon Tolstoy and kind of followed it all the way up into the present, but he can talk more about that. So Samuel Moyne, are you there? I am. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. So for people, if, if you want to add anything to your lengthy academic background or your books, please do and tell the audience what led you to write this very timely book, Humane. Well, you know, I, I, I worked in government under Bill Clinton in, in the National Security Council in, in my youth. But really, like the rest of us, I, I've just been reflecting on the war on terror now coming up on 20 years old. Uh, the first intervention was in Afghanistan, now ending uh, with a lot of hullabaloo around how quickly the Taliban took over. I really um, wrote this book in response to Barack Obama's presidency because it was then that America figured out how to fight a sustainable war on terror. Actually, you know, we've been pulling down troops in Afghanistan since Obama tried the surge, remember, that brought our troops up to 100,000. By the time Donald Trump was president, there were only a few thousand. So it's true that Joe Biden pulling out is making a big difference in the sense that the Taliban is is co- conquering the whole place. But it's it's been a long time that we've been changing uh, our American war towards this more humane form of war that I target in this book. And it's a form of war that will outlast uh, what's happening in 
uh, Afghanistan today. Right. So like you've seen this this change and you really go back and start the book off with. And I was surprised about all the pacifism, the transnational relationships between pacifistic individuals and organizations. But you start with a really important figure, Leon, uh, Leo Tolstoy. Can you talk about him and his importance to what's led up to the present? Absolutely. So, you know, the reason I start back in the 19th century is it's because it's it's then in the middle around the 1850s and 60s that people first start to think that we could make war humane. And, and the big argument of my book is that that's only really happened in the past few decades. And yet from the beginning in the 19th century, this novelist, Leo Tolstoy, famous as the author of the maybe the greatest no novel of modern times, War and Peace, he worried about the whole idea of making war humane. He did early uh, when he uh, was uh, just a kid actually fighting uh, as an aristocrat in the Crimean War. And then he repeated his worries in the novel War and Peace. But then something big happened. Tolstoy uh, converted to his own very personal form of Christianity. He became a pacifist and a vegetarian. And the worries he'd had all along about prettifying war, making it more civilized, using law to do so, um, in his later life, he expressed those worries really vividly. And so I start with Tolstoy because from the beginning, of the idea of making war humane, there's a critic. And Tolstoy basically says, if we make more war more humane, we won't end it. Instead, we'll bake it into our lives uh, and we'll even pretend it's a good thing. Uh, and so I look in detail at the, the way he worried about the, the, the reality we've only begun to live through in our time. Right. And I mean, it's, it is pretty remarkable that he went through this conversion. I think you said he was at the Caesar of Sephastopol, so he had seen the amputation rooms and Absolutely. all the brutality. Right. And so we, he's well known for war and peace, but he was also involved in um, correspondence with other pacifists and also writing books that uh, promoted pacifism, correct? Absolutely. So, you know, he... He, he was a great novelist, but he was really one of the most famous men in general of the later 19th and early 20th centuries. And it was because of his nonfiction writings as a kind of um, prophet or sage that he might have exercised his biggest effect. Mohandas Gandhi uh, read uh, Tolstoy's book, The Kingdom of God is Within Us, and really our whole understanding of nonviolent resistance of the kind that Gandhi made famous comes from Tolstoy, Martin Luther King, another great disciple, in this case, American. And true to type, King in the midst of the Vietnam War argued against the war, not against just its brutality. And my, my point is we've entered an age in our, in our history where we've kind of forgotten their message. And we tend to say, oh no, the problem with the war on terror is the torture or the problem with the drones is that too many civilians are dying. Whereas Tolstoy was asking really basic questions about whether it's moral to do this at all in any form. 
Right. And I mean, they kind of tied it. It was interesting for me to read that they kind of tied it to slavery and saw that war was, or these conflicts, bloody wars were also something that they thought would never really be overcome, that it would just be part, it was just part of the human condition. And I think that Tolstoy really had this, like you said, this kind of idea of non-resistance was I think you and they got excommunicated by the Russian Russian Orthodox Church. He he was. I mean, his, his idea comes from the Sermon on the Mount. You know, resist not evil, and he interpreted it in a way that was more radical than many Christians uh, in history. By the way, he drew in those interpretations on a lot of radical Americans, um, including. Uh, some some pacifists uh, we could talk about, but yeah. no, he, he Tolstoy really did try to come up with some arguments for skeptics um, of 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 his for his you know in favor of his view that we we care more about whether we start and keep fighting war and less about whether we make it more humane. So he looks back as you say to slavery for. You know, millennia, everyone accepted slavery, and then suddenly it became wrong in the later 18th and early 19th century, so about 50 years before Tolstoy is writing. And he says, well, what if that's what should happen to war, too? All the reformers for a long time looked at slavery and said, we can't end it, so we have to make it kinder and gentler, and all the rules around slavery before the Civil War about how you can't mistreat your slaves rather than um, whether it's wrong to actually own other people. And Tolstoy said, what if we're in the same situation just with a little delay? Because we can imagine less war or no war. Um, and maybe we should focus less on making war um, kinder and gentler, reducing suffering, and more on whether we have it at all. Um, what if we give up too quick, just as we did with slavery for so long, and the same thing could be happening with war now? I think it is. I think you're right. And I think that uh, it's interesting because he kind of had a personal, uh, he was an aristocrat in Russia, but he had a personal, you know, uh, involvement in their kind of slave or serf system. So he went through his own changes with his own serfs and then... Uh, it was interesting, too, how influential he was in the U.S. Can you talk about some of the people he influenced? I didn't know that there were Tolstoy communes, even sure. up until um, Vietnam War. Sure, um, or beyond. So, absolutely, he was a an, an aristocrat account. He had a vast tract of land. Uh, you can still visit it. Uh, and he... Uh, you know, when he, he developed these views, he began to try to live them out. So even before the, the Russian, you know, Tsar, the, their king, freed the serfs in 1862, Tolstoy had tried to free, free his own on his land, and they, they kind of wouldn't accept it. Um, similarly, when he converted to vegetarianism, he, um, you know, tried to get his wife and children to stop eating meat. At, at first, they wouldn't buy it, but eventually they, they put up with it and you know, they became some of the most famous vegetarians because his wife put out a cookbook um, of vegetarian recipes that really was kind of at the center of early vegetarianism. So Tolstoy at, was influential as a Christian, as a kind of, you know, 
a prophet on, on lots of different kinds of issues and not just on war, although he did try, as you said, to drum up support across Europe for soldiers refusing to fight. And so he's a, a pivotal figure in, in the popularity of conscientious objection. But because of his commitment to peace, he did have a, a big impact on American figures. Uh, and so if, if we look at um, the American peace movement, which gets very big in the later 19th and early 20th century, a lot of it is emerging in response to Tolstoy. And in, in a way, um, some of the, the worries about um, Tolstoy are, are that maybe he goes too far. If you believe the Christianity you, you really not only can't go to war, you can't kill a fly, you can't you know, swat a mosquito. And what about self-defense when someone attacks us? So the mainstream peace movement that comes out uh, of the, the, the United States and the United Kingdom, they generally are less radical and they're trying to get states to get along and sign treaties with one another. And one of the big campaigns um, in American history including at the very top, you know, presidents, vice presidents, um, was to try to engineer as many peace treaties as, uh, as diplomats could arrange in hopes of at least getting um, two countries to agree never to fight again. Uh, there was no United Nations yet. So, um, but American leaders took Tolstoy seriously enough to pursue his agenda diplomatically. Right. So he um, he has this cross influence. I guess the, the guy's name is Aidan Balu, who Tolstoy right. really admired. Right. So he's he's the the pacifist uh, in Hopewell, Massachusetts, uh, which you can visit. I drove up there since I'm nearby when I was researching this. You know, he's less famous than William Lloyd Garrison. But um, both of them in the 1830s kind of developed these radical Christian opposition to both slavery and war. And the trouble was that these kinds of figures in the 1850s and 60s had to choose between those two causes. What if we have to go to war to end slavery? So Garrison chose to bracket his pacifism in order to support the civil war. But Balu, um, who founded this um, commune out in Hopewell, uh, made the reverse choice. And he said, it's wrong even to fight the civil war, uh, even if it might end slavery. Oh, right. So, yeah, so they were corresponding. He's corresponding with Tolstoy. And also Tolstoy had an influence upon William Jennings Bryant, who uh, was an important figure right there at the turn of the century. Absolutely. You know, there are so many American Tolstoy nuts, James, uh, J uh, Jane Adams, William Jennings Bryan, uh, and who became, you know, Woodrow Wilson's vice president. Uh, and it was in that capacity that he negotiated a lot of these peace treaties before the United States, you know, fatefully intervened in World War I in 1916, 17. So um, what I try to get at through reminding us of that history is that while America was constantly fighting wars in Latin America and it was a starting an empire in the Philippines, there were also a lot of other tendencies and there was no America kind of ruling the world yet because so many people, sometimes 
Christians either on their own or taking Tolstoy seriously didn't think it was right to have such a belligerent world. And so that's part of our history that I try to recover in our time when we fight endless wars almost without a second thought. Right. I mean, I think the U.S. has been at war now. It's for most of its history, I think only 20 years of peace in the total 250 years of our country. So it is interesting. And who is um, Vaughn Sutner and why is she important in the story of pacifism? So, you know, what I do after looking at Tolstoy is I go on to look at the more mainstream peace movement. And I just am trying to look at um, just the range of 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 icons back in the day, all the early winners of the Nobel Peace Prize, um, who were some of the most famous people in the world at the time because they really called for states to give up their rights to just go to war whenever they wanted. And and I think the most famous and I most interesting is uh, another noble uh, noble. This one, an Austrian noble woman named Berta von Suttner. Uh, she was born in in what's today Czechoslovakia, uh, was then part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And she writes a novel um, called Lay Down Your Arms that just kind of turned the world uh, on its ear. And it really mainstreamed the anti-war cause more than any document. Tolstoy wrote her, actually, and said, you're like the new Harriet Beecher Stowe. What Harriet Beecher Stowe did for slavery, you're doing for war. And it's true that her novel, though it's practically unreadable today, I mean, I read it, um, had a huge effect, a bestseller that uh, across the Atlantic um, sparked a, an enormous amount of interest in ending war. And we can try, we can sort of see why, you know, women like von Suttner are becoming more powerful. Um, society is becoming more commercial. War kind of seems like something that ought to be part of the benighted past and not something that keeps going, especially when, you know, there are more and more wars after 1850. First, there was the Crimean War. Then there were the wars of Italian and German unification, like the Franco-Prussian War, incredibly brutal. And a lot of women especially begin to say, we're empowered, we're on the road to getting the vote. Why are we allowing states to uh, uh, be organized so that our husbands, brothers, and sons die in such great numbers? And so women really pick up Tolstoy's um, crusade and they have a, they, we owe them a lot, I think, uh, along with um, you know other activists, um, for mainstreaming the anti-war cause uh, through the middle of the 20th century. Right. And I think it's a, there's an interesting quote in your book where I, I can't remember the woman's name, but she said the solution to war is going to be solved by females. We have to step forward and really take the point. And that's Von, Von Sutner really as a female. I mean, you said she sold a million copies around the world at that time. That's really a substantial. That's incredible. Amount. Yeah, really a lot. And you, and, and in the book, it's, uh, you know, fiction, but she includes those battles. You're talking Battle of Magenta, Battle of Solferino. And I think that that's, those battles were really important for also this kind of humaneness influence in war because out of that battle, what came out of that Battle of Solferino? Right. So in, in, in 1901, the, the Nobel 
um, prizes begin to be issued. You know, this chemical magnet, explosives magnet, Alfred Nobel had given money. And uh, they they choose a pacifist for the first one, and, and Suttner herself won it four years later. But they also choose another character named Henri Dunant, who was Swiss. And he was the person who, in the 1860s, had really first imagined humane war. So there's what I try to show in the book is that there is this big dispute in the 19th century about whether we end war or we make it more humane. Tolstoy was not confused about this dilemma. He said, actually, making it more humane could make war harder to end. But other pacifists weren't sure whether both, both parts of the agenda were good. The Nobel Prize uh, kind of adopted both parts of the agenda by dividing the first one between a pacifist uh, and Dunant. Um, and, you know, Sutner, when she heard that Dunant, who was an old man by this point, was being given the first Nobel, she flew into action because she didn't want the Peace Prize to get mixed up with the project of just making war less cruel um, by protecting prisoners of war and things like that. So she goes out and finds Dunant and says, you need to come on board with my anti-war movement and explain that you're against war, not just brutality and war. And you know, he does it. Um, he says, you know, I hate war. Now, um, when he'd come up with the idea of making war more humane in the 1860s, it was because he thought war would never end. The best we could do is to make it less brutal. As so many people think today when they hear about torture at Abu Ghraib or civilian casualties under the drones. But when he won the Nobel Peace Prize, Suttner convinced him that he'd been wrong and that we need to have a higher aim, which is to constrain war, try to keep it from breaking out and stop it when it starts. Right, so, yeah, and so they, Sutner, who was the one who started the, the Geneva Conventions and the Red Cross? That, did that come that's, out? That's Dunant, so that's, I should have mentioned that in the 1860s when he has the idea of making war humane he says let me let me do something about this so he gets together with these other swiss gentlemen and they they create a treaty they summon all the european powers to geneva and they they write the first geneva convention which basically says you have to let private citizens um, minister to wounded soldiers on the battlefield when the generals forget them because Dunant had wandered across this battlefield of Solferino on a business trip, and these young men are just bleeding out and left to die by, you know, their their armies. And so he says, let's not let that happen again. And from that seed, everything we now think um, should never happen in war, like the abusive POWs or excess harm to civilians comes, and we have new Geneva Conventions, in, uh, in notably in 1949, which are still good law. So uh, it's really interesting that Dunant founds the Red Cross, which even to this day supervises the laws of war. But those laws aren't about keeping wars from happening. They're about making them less brutal when they happen. 
Right. So more humane. And also, I found it interesting. One some uh, piece of history I didn't know was uh, Tsar Nicholas II's attempt to like forestall war and calling for a peace conference that involved von Suttner as well. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So after the 1860s uh, and the first Geneva Convention, as I mentioned, there's this big debate about whether to have more peace or more humane war. And, you know, we still don't know why, but the Tsar kind of shocks everyone uh, in 1899 by saying we need a general peace conference. Uh, you know, people think that it was because he read a few books on the subject. Others say, look, he was falling behind in the arms race that the European powers were conducting. Remember that, you know, England and Germany were in the midst of building dreadnoughts and Russia couldn't keep up with the militarization of the European continent that led to World War I. So maybe that's why he called a peace conference. At any rate, everyone came to The Hague in 1899, and, um, but they failed. You know, and Sutner was outraged because uh, she said, "You you call you can't call a peace conference and 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 fail." And and yet, what the diplomats did is try to save face by um, responding to this failure by saying, "We came up with something else instead. It's almost as good. It's new rules for war for fighting." And those are again, you know. Um, part of the law of war we have today. They're called the Hague Regulations. Uh, and yet Sutner wasn't buying it. She said, this is, this is a consolation prize. Uh, you were supposed to give us peace, and instead you've just agreed to fight less brutally. And she didn't accept it. Um, and indeed, down through World War I, and especially in between World War I and II, activists like her um, repudiated just aiming for making war more humane because they said we've got to pressure states to give up fighting with each other uh, or at least some of the time. Right. And so, I mean, there were other attempts. I think you talk about these binding arbitrations that were supposedly supposed to forestall wars, but uh, they didn't really work at working as World War One started. I mean, I think Sutner passed away in 1914. You mentioned right before the Archduke Ferdinand was murdered. And that really set off this very inhumane, the, the, probably the most beautiful, brutal war up until that time. Can you talk about what led to that and what the consequences of World War I were? Sure, so, you know, as, as William Jennings Bryant is, is um, negotiating treaties, their, their arbitration treaties, the idea was basically, before we just start firing shots, let's try to see if we can get have someone negotiate um, a, a you know an alternative and for a long time the the before there was a united nations the idea was to get together some kind of arbitration scheme that would basically give the dispute between states to a third party judge who would you know decide the right and wrongs, and that way there wouldn't have to be a war. Well, states never accepted, you know, that kind of constraint. They allowed for voluntary arbitration, but never kind of mandatory. And of course, when World War One came, um, it's kind of shocking that people thought that peace could ever have another chance. I mean, there'd been all these activists like Sutner who'd 
you know, clamored for peace for a generation. And all, all we got was, you know, a terrible war. But as you say, World War I was so cruel that afterwards people said, well, we can't make war less brutal either. So we have to stick with the attempt to get rid of war, or at least as many wars as we can. So they found the League of Nations. There's a Kellogg-Briand pact that actually outlaws war, and the United States signs and ratifies it. Um, and so for a generation there in between World War One and and the rise of Adolf Hitler, there's there's like a good faith attempt to kind of pick up the pieces uh, of of Sutner's dream and try to make it a reality. It's just that they don't succeed. Um, and yet in the streets, especially in America, there's such distaste for World War One that there, there really is a big kind of peace commitment in between World War One and Two, um, and it's probably the furthest that peace ever got in American history, um, it, because World War One was so unpopular until Adolf Hitler made it clear that it was going to be necessary to redo, redo right and go the second time, and you kind of go into in your book this element of air war and i think that it 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 adds over to our present time how yep. these bombings and and the effects upon civilians even to the present and the drone things can you talk about what happened in world war ii in that regard absolutely so maybe we should begin just for a second by going back because Please we've been talking about making war humane and we've been talking about ending war most of those causes were about white people protecting whites from um, other whites. So it's really about a transatlantic campaign. You know, meanwhile, most states, especially the European empires, um, as well as the United States in places like the Philippines, where we fight a very brutal counterinsurgency, we, we don't think the same, you know, um, problems of war and brutal war are really kind of applying to when whites fight non-whites um, really around the world. Um, and the history of air war and its rise kind of illustrates that before um, the bombing of, of Germany in the midst of, of World War II, right when the airplanes invented, people begin to get scared. There are very few sorties um, in World War One where um, you know there's civilian bombing in, involved. It's not that big a deal, but people begin to say the future of war is in the air and from the air. And of course, it is through our own day with drones. Um, and so uh, there's a lot of, of fear. Sutner, to her credit, um, thinks it's terrible that all these European empires. Um, are bombing routinely in their colonies um, against non-whites and says it's it's not good enough to get angry about this when it happens to us. We need to nip this in the bud. And she writes a whole tract against bombing from the air, but she's ignored. And the rise of air forces, uh, you know, makes it practically guaranteed that World War II will be decided in large part by indiscriminate violence from the air. And we know that happened with 
the Americans and, and Brits bombing uh, Germany after, you know, the terrible things that, that Germany um, did during the Blitz, um, its own bombing. And then, of course, uh, America bombs uh, Japan, first firebombing and then uh, the nuclear uh, devastation. And, you know, the interesting thing from this point of view is that this is supposed to be a war for a final peace. Um, and, and in a way, it gets provided. Um, what Sutner wanted, a transatlantic peace, is provided by America stepping up um, in a way it didn't after World War I. But America also shoulders the responsibility of fighting the world over after World War II. And just as it did in Japan, it begins to bomb very routinely. Uh, and those are brutal practices, you know, right or wrong, bombing Japan, bombing Korea, bombing Vietnam. Cambodia, um, right, all those Absolutely, are, are become like an American way of life. Um, and so if you like, America gives peace to Europe, but kind of takes on the brutal wars that Europeans had been fighting worldwide and that it fought in the Philippines, um, you know, in, in, in its own empire. So it's, you know, 1945 is this very fateful moment. We, we get a kind of peace in one place. We get brutal war everywhere else. And, and the point of my book is to say something big happened after that, because even though we still have air war, we care a lot about brutality in, in ways that our, our American ancestors didn't. Yeah, and I mean, after 45, there just was so much indiscriminate bombing. And, and I think it leads up to this kind of drone uh, element. You end up your book talking about the death of Soleimani in 2000. And also the intro to your book was, I like the, I love the juxtaposition you had between the wedding party in... Uh, New Canaan, Connecticut, and then a wedding party in Kandahar, and how this kind of uh, juxtaposition of the U.S. and Afghanistan, very timely, and, and their perception of this kind of new technological cyber warfare, special forces warfare, it really was fascinating. Right. So, you know, the story I tell is that in, in part because uh, we begin to kind of care about the toll of civilian bombing that we've done indiscriminately over Japan, Korea, Cambodia, Vietnam, and so forth. Um, but also because the laws that Tolstoy worried about began to be taken seriously after Vietnam. Um, we, we changed air war. Um, and we, we, in part, it was because we had new technological possibilities like drones or teched up special forces, which we send almost everywhere in the world these days. But it, 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 it seems different to me because when we talk about um, bombing civilians around the world, we say, well, what if too many died? When, when Soleimani was killed, the lawyers were involved to make sure that um, only, you know, combatants and not civilians died. When under Donald Trump, um, he struck and special forces got the leader of the Islamic State. The guys land, their first act is to segregate 
the women and children uh, and kill as few of them as possible when they when they shoot dead uh, our adversary. And so that that wouldn't have happened in World War II when we just indiscriminately bombed civilians, or even in Korea, which was maybe the worst you know war in terms of brutality that America's fought on both sides, and then Vietnam. So. You know, we could get into this, but something big happens, I think, in terms of embarrassment, in terms of optics, in terms of public relations after Vietnam, when the military itself says we can't do this anymore and the public demands a new kind of war. Yeah, no, something really did change. And it's the same thing happened in Iraq with some of the leaked videos that came out of uh, strikes by missiles from the sky, you know, civilians being killed. And uh, really, and it really has reinvented this uh, this modern kind of warfare that keeps all of those things into account, but all, tries to maintain that humaneness, but uh, maybe doesn't live up to that. I would say. Would you? There, we're kind of coming to the end here. Is there anything you'd like to add? Anything I'd miss before uh, we wrap wrap it up? I, I'll just say that you know you're totally right. That you know I think. Um, spring 2004, when the Abu Ghraib photos were revealed, was kind of the 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 the, the big break. We we'd invaded Iraq, and you know it was brutal and violent. Very, very you know, lots of troops on both sides, lots of violence. Um, but when 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 the Abu Ghraib photos were revealed, I think there was like a moment when people said, we have to, we have to wage this war on terror more humanely. Um, and it had a, it, it has had a big effect, especially uh, once Barack Obama took office, because as I try to show in the last chapter, he, he really struggled to make the war on terror more humane, um, getting out of places like Afghanistan, but, um, also allowing us to kind of keep fighting if we could be precise uh, and humane along the way. And that's the future I think Americans are facing. And the question is, do they want it? Right. That's a good question. That's, that's the way it's going to work out. Are we going to have these drone strikes, drone wars far from the sky that uh, continue forever? I don't know. Anyway, the title of the book, and a very excellent conversation. Thank you so much, Samuel Moyne. title of the book that comes out September 7th, 2021 is Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right, cool. That was It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.